Here we are, the Sunday before Easter 2021. There's been a fair amount of water that's flowed under the bridge in the last year. And I'd like to start a series of reflections on resurrection. And I know it may be slightly unusual uh, before Good Friday to start speaking about the resurrection. But uh, I just think in our context and where we are now, we need to re-examine from different angles how we understand the resurrection as individuals and as a group. And I want to start by saying, um, I remember clearly, uh, it's now at this time of year, 49 years ago, that I preached my first sermon. I was a teenager, uh, about 16, and um, our youth group took the service before Easter, and I was uh, assigned to preach. I have no recollection of what I preached. I was so scared. But then about a year later, I was at Bible College, and I was asked to preach at an Anglican service, three-hour Anglican service, uh, split up into six segments with a preaching portion in each on Good Friday. I was still so green as a Christian at that stage that I chose as my topic the resurrection, which raised more than just a few eyebrows, I must say, that day. But the resurrection has always been, for me, a constant theme throughout my um, personal life and in terms of how I understand the church. And I think it's still a focus. The cross is important. The cross is central. It's vital. And of course, every time we come to communion, we remember the death of Jesus and what he accomplished on the cross for us. Um, we make the cross the central symbol of what Christianity is all about. And the cross of Jesus is the crux of who we are and what God has done in and through his son for us. So this stress for me on the resurrection is not to lessen anything in terms of the cross. It's just that I feel this is an important corrective for us at this time. So I start with a statement I found years ago, and I can't now um, accredit it because I don't remember where I got it, but it was this. Crucifixion is the standing statement of what we do to one another and to ourselves. In other words, we crucify each other. We crucify ourselves. We, we put each other to death. Death is the order of the day. And then it goes on to say this. Resurrection is the standing statement of what God does to us and for us in return. Crucifixion is the standing statement of what we do to one another and to ourselves. Resurrection is the standing statement of what God does to and for us in return. And Paul, when he's writing to the Corinthian church, at the end of the first letter, chapter 15, he has an extended excursus on uh, resurrection and the meaning of the resurrection. And we'll probably come to that again next week or the week after, but I want to read just a portion of it this morning. It's 1 Corinthians 15, verse 16 to 20, and I'm reading from the message. If corpses can't be raised, then Christ wasn't, because he was indeed dead. And if Christ weren't raised, then all you're doing is wandering about in the dark, as lost as ever. It's even worse for those who died hoping in Christ and the resurrection, because they're already in their graves. If all we get out of Christ is a little inspiration for a few, few short years, we're a pretty sorry lot. 
But the truth is that Christ has been raised up. The first in a long legacy of those who are going to leave the cemeteries. And that's what Paul writes to them. And he says, we're a sorry bunch. If resurrection, if, if, if all that Jesus means to us is um, a, a bit of an extra nice life here on earth. But he says that the truth is that Christ has been raised. And the resurrection is at the center and core of who we are. That we live because he lives. Some years ago, I discovered this story, and I, I can't tell you where it comes from in the UK, but some years ago, it was reported that a um, young boy, his name was Stephen, he was eight years at the time of this incident, eight years old, and he had a brain condition that was creating a deteriorating health and his capacity to understand what was going on around him. Eight years old. And his teacher at Children's Church became more and more sensitive to the fact that he was struggling to keep up and that his classmates were, um, he was in a different league at this stage. And they continued to love him. He participated fully in what was going on. But the fact that he was different was becoming more and more obvious. Early in the April, the teacher asked all the eight who were part of the class, to hide in a container a small object that represented for them the new life that comes in spring. She was concerned that with Stephen um, not being able to grasp sometimes, not being able to keep up, she didn't want to embarrass him. So she had all the children place these containers on the table. And then she would take, she took the first one and opened up the container and in it was a tiny little flower. And she wasn't going to ask, well, who's this? Because she didn't want to um, uh, put pressure on the, the situation. But inevitably, one of the little kids uh, stuck their hand up and said, I brought that one. She picked up the second one and opened it and there was inside a little rock. And she thought, oh, this must be Stevens because how on earth is a rock a sign of new life? But Billy couldn't help himself, so he shouted out and said, that was me. And she said, well, new life? And he said, well, there's a little bit of moss on that rock, and that's like new life. And so she had to agree. And the third one, a butterfly flew out, and um, that child bragged that that was the best sign of uh, new life. And then she opened up one, and it was empty. And she thought, that must be Stevens. And so she began to reach for the fifth box. But Stephen stopped her and he said, don't skip mine, please. And the teacher said to him, Stephen, but it's empty. And he said, yes, that's right. The tomb was empty and that's a sign of new life for everybody. The story goes on. Later that year, Stephen's condition worsened and he died. And at the funeral, the mourners saw on his coffin, his little coffin, eight little containers. And you guessed it, each one of them was empty. Sometimes we need an eight-year-old to remind us that that's the purpose of life, the empty tomb, 
is the purpose of life. That's why it is what it is. And we have in John chapter um, 11, I think it's 11 now, let me just check. Um, John 11, yeah, verse 25, Jesus, it's that whole situation with Martha and Mary and Lazarus has died and he comes to the grave and he's been there three days. And Jesus says to um, Martha, because she says to him, I know we will rise again on the last day. And he says to her, Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. The empty tomb, the resurrection is why we have life. That Jesus himself, in his person, who he is, is resurrection life. It's, it's part of the fabric of who God is, the resurrection of old life into new. And it goes on in chapter 12. There's the uh, amazing passage where it says, Truly, truly, I say, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Because there's the sense of uh, life when it dies is buried and then it's resurrected into something new and something that gives fruitfulness and life. And that's the image that God has, not only of Jesus in, him, in terms of his death, and his death and resurrection, but in terms of your life and my life. We were dead. Now we are alive because of the resurrection of Jesus. But that's not just something that happened. It's not just something that happened to Jesus. It's not just something that happened to you and I historically some point in time when we acknowledged and, and uh, um, apprehended and took into ourselves all that Jesus had done. That's how we live. That Jesus exchanges the death of our life and our willingness to allow that death to happen in order that we can be buried and bring, bring us, uh, we be brought back into a resurrected life. That is an ongoing daily occurrence. That's the point. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And when we live in him, that's the kind of life that we have. There's a passage in the Old Testament that has um, been, uh, it's a storied passage in Ezekiel 37. Um, there's songs written about it, there's sort of humorous things written about it, but the, the point is that that passage in Ezekiel 37 is remarkable in that um, the Lord brings Ezekiel to a place in the spirit, and in the middle of the valley it's full of bones. Yeah, you guessed it, the valley of dry bones, Ezekiel 37. And it says, he caused him to pass through the middle of it, and there were many on the surface of the valley, it says. It was strewn, littered, covered with dry bones that were very dry. There is the stress on the fact that there is no life here. All the life-giving fluid is gone. And then the questions, can these bones live? And his answer is, well, I don't know. They look dead to me. You know, he says to God. And then God says to him, well, Speak to these bones, prophesy over them, announce to these bones that they're going to live. And he says, I will cause breath to enter them so that they may have life. Something is dead, can only have life again 
if God decides to breathe into it. And so you know the story that he says to these bones, um, and, and so he prophesies and commands them, and there's a noise and a rattling, and the bones come together, bone to bone, and he looks and sinews, and then, and there's a mighty army, a huge army, standing up. They've been reconstituted. They have been re-enfleshed, uh, if you like. But they're just standing there. And then he says, um, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say, breath, thus says the Lord, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may come to life. And that's exactly what happens. He commands it, and they stand up a huge, huge army. We need God to breathe on us. We need God to actually blow into our lives his breath, his spirit, his ruach, his pneuma. The breath of God needs to come into us in a fresh way. That those parts of our lives, those parts of our community, our church, that are, are moribund, that are atrophied, would again live. Those dry places will experience the breath and the water of God bringing new life back into them. And it goes on to say, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Our, and they say, our bones are dried and our hope has perished. And he says, what I'm going to say to Israel is that I will open your graves and cause you to come out of your graves. And I will put my spirit within you and you shall come to life. And that's the point. Resurrection, the, the fact that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, and the fact that he was crucified and died, and he is raised to new life, is the promise, the harbinger, if you like, of new life for you and I. Fresh, abundant life for all of us. And as I said earlier, I said again, it is not just that once event where now we have the security of knowing that we have become part of God's family. And it's the fact that constantly those parts of us that are dead and decaying can come back to a, a, a newness, a vibrancy that they have lost. And that's the joy of being part of the family of God, is that resurrection life is always possible. And it's bedded into the way that God has created things. Israel, for example, the, the picture of Israel in Egypt and the way that they are liberated from Egypt through the Sea of Reeds and into the new and promised land is a picture of how God takes a people who had become enslaved and were virtually dead and liberates them from the clutches of the world that they were living in and sets them free to worship and to become the people that God has called them to be. It's an image not only of for Israel, but for, for all of us, for the church, for you and I. Then there's the whole picture of Israel who, who continue after many years and uh, a whole lot of um, stops and starts to uh, move away from the presence of God. And they go into exile. They go into a place where they are actually uh, in, in deep trouble as far as um, their relationship to God. And they end up in Babylon, estranged, dead, from the presence of God. And what Ezekiel is saying in these passages and what Jeremiah says and others is that God will return you from exile. He will raise you up again. 
and you will become a people. You will again experience the glory of God's presence in your midst. The, the, the power and energy of God, His breath, will be in you. You will be resurrected. And when Mary talks, I mean, Martha talks to Jesus in John 11 that we, we looked at earlier. What she's saying is, yes, I understand resurrection. I know that's been part of our heritage. And I know at the end of time, there will be this resurrection. And Jesus is saying, no, right now, at this moment, you are looking at the embodiment of resurrection life. I am the resurrection and the life, he says to her. And then the church through the centuries has been renewed and restored. There's been resurrection when we've become um, atrophied and broken. Individual lives, I've said that a couple of times through this now, that there are times where we die off and parts of us are dead. They've may, maybe never been energized, but God takes those broken, dead bits of us and breathes His Spirit on us and rise, raises us up into a fullness of life. And of course, at the end of time, there will be this great resurrection of the dead and everything will be made whole again. It's the theme of history. It's the way God has designed the universe. Um, it's structured for resurrection. Except a grain of wheat falls into the ground, it dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, then it is raised to new life and it bears fruit. So yes, the cross is central. I have several crosses in my office as a reminder of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. But the empty box that Stephen so profoundly understood is a marker of the fact that resurrection is built into the way that God plans us to live. And every year when we see the daffodils begin to come through and the little tree outside my office begins to have its flowers, we realize again that this urge to life is built into the very fabric of creation, into the universe. But we're not there yet. It's not complete yet. There's work to be done. You and I still have a task, a mission, a purpose, a vision to see the kingdom come. You can Google this on YouTube and look for Tony Campolo. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. And what he does, there's several clips that you can look at, and some are longer than others, but he, Tony Campolo is a sociologist who uh, is also a theologian and a Baptist minister. And the church that he was part of, or is part of, in Philadelphia, had um, uh, one of the sort of orators of the Baptist church for many years, um, uh, Dr. Lockridge. From 1913 to 2000, he was um, a voice of uh, passionate um, preaching amongst the African-American community in America. And he, he was the first one who did this. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. It's Friday, and Sundays are coming. And Tony Campolo relates to the time when he first heard Lockridge say that. It, it, Tony Campolo eventually wrote a book called It's Friday but Sunday's Coming and obviously he's referencing the Good Friday Good Friday, good only because in many, in many respects because it's um, followed by the resurrection but it's Friday and Sunday's coming 
There's a day that's skipped out though. We have a name for Friday. It's called Good Friday. We have a name for Sunday. It's called Easter Sunday. But that day in between is almost symbolic of where we live at the moment. This in-between period between when Jesus has been raised and when the fullness of creation will see that resurrection life in every part of it. And we, as his people, are the ones who are helping it come. It's here. The kingdom has come. But it's not yet fully revealed, as it will be on one of these days. We live in the Saturday. The Good Friday is dark, literally. And it's good only because of Easter Sunday. And that's a clue to how the universe is. Easter Sunday is the resurrection of Jesus. That resurrection life of his, that fact that he is the resurrection and the life, opens up a crack in the universe. A universe that was winding down, that was moving towards entropy, that was decaying, that was on its way to death. And he seals with a promise, a promise of his resurrection and his life, that someday the whole earth, the large miracle of Easter, will engulf the entire universe. The resurrection is cosmic in its scale. And that is exceptionally exciting. Because it can transform the bones in the desert. It can raise Lazarus. It can bring a people out of exile. It can bring new life to you and I. And ultimately, the entire universe, the cosmos, will be reshaped in that way. We live in the middle of a cosmic drama. We have a role to play and are called to be signs of God's resurrection, a resurrection of life and joy. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming.